0: Veni, veni, venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse News. Hello. So, uh, welcome to part two of our episode on queens. Um, the yay, the people. Not the borough borough. of New York City. Yes. (laughs) So last time we talked about Jane Grey, uh, Mary the First, Elizabeth the First, Mary the Second, Anne Victoria, and Elizabeth the Second. Yay. Which all, they're very iconic. Yes. Who would you say is your favorite of them? Oh, Elizabeth the First. Yeah always classic
1: right yeah i mean she gives her name to the era of course elizabethan england but she is also shakespeare's queen right that's true she believes basically in freedom of the theater at least where shakespeare's company is concerned
0: which is awesome um he wrote those falstaff plays for her i think
1: I mean, that's the theory that you wanted to see Falstaff in love, and that's why we have Merry Wives. But who knows? Um, But, you know, more particularly, just the idea that, for example, they didn't get punished for doing Richard II, Mm -hmm. um, which, for listeners, I believe we've mentioned before, but of course, Richard II, historically, and also in the play, gets deposed. um, And it's because
0: he's a bad king. Like, he's not very good at his job, and somebody else takes it, and... This interferes with this idea that God decides who gets to be king. Yes, but not even that. Unlike,
1: for example, Richard III, who, of course, is a villain, right? Is a famous villain.
0: A fantastic villain. An iconic villain. Right. Shakespeare kind of did him dirty compared to real life. But did he? I mean, we don't know. He did not murder the princes in the tower. I do not think.
1: Well, we don't even know that really. If he didn't. If he didn't, Richmond would have had to, Henry VII. We just literally don't know. I mean unless we ever find the bodies we'll never ever know and even then we probably won't because I don't think there'd be
0: any way at this point to tell <laughs> that he if it had been had the for... bodies buried with a little note that says I Richard the third, <laughs> yes, commanded exactly. these boys to be <laughs> yes. killed yes sorry
1: yes. or historian. I Henry the 7th had this done but blamed it on Richard yeah yes we will never ever know but but the, that's the funny thing like Richard didn't have the same um fear really That Henry VII would have had, because Henry VII really had no claim at all to the throne. (laughs) So, whereas Richard III kind of did, um, not in place of the princes, but nonetheless, he got them out of the way basically by saying that they were illegitimate. Um, which whether or not it was true, I mean, it wasn't true, but whether or not people really believed it probably, you know, did its purpose. Um, but Henry VII, it didn't, it wouldn't have mattered. Even illegitimate kids, they were still (laughs) <laughs> they were still ahead of him in line um but yeah we just won't know and we don't really know we don't know what killed them i mean so all of that it's it's impossible to know um i i am kind of on the side that henry did it just because it's quite possible that richard didn't necessarily have time mm-hmm. you know he wasn't king for super long longer than he
0: is really in shakespeare's play but in shakespeare's play he's king for like 2 hours so yeah yeah
1: um it's also worth pointing out of course he did not kill his wife (laughs) not only that um they were they were genuinely in love as far as anyone knows they were a good couple
0: yeah so Um, a woman in this humor was actually wooed yes yes
1: and um since we're talking about queens we might as well bring up so queen anne of course um yeah richard's absolutely legit queen they did have a kid who died um Clarence, the Duke of George, Duke of Clarence, who of course in the play has honestly one of the greatest speeches Shakespeare ever wrote, um, which is his dream about dying. Holy oh, cow. Yeah.
0: Okay, I mean, so I s- Brian, my husband has been in community theater and they do the, the two murderers scene oh, where they come yes. to stab him. It's a great scene. And we've rehearsed it so many times that our five-year-old we'll see people coming to the house and be like, oh, are they going to stab daddy? Awesome.
1: That is awesome. I love it. Yeah. I've been in that scene in a few different roles. Um, I've been the murderers. I did a Kabuki version of it. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Um, That was back in college, but yeah, it's a phenomenal scene, but the scene before that where he wakes up and he sort of had this dream that clearly yeah. foretells his death. Um, It's just incredible. It's an amazing speech, but, um, <laughs> he, in real life, and this is in the play, because in this, he sort of made, he's given a good death. Shakespeare gives him a good death. It's not clear that historically he deserves that. Um, A good death, of course, meaning someone
0: who dies well, so mm-hmm. dies nobly. Yeah, because um, he argues with the murderers, and he was like, you know... He who told you to do this will hate you for it and, you know, Yes. tries to... But he's not, like, cowardly. Well, he, he doesn't no, but not complain. even that. He's also... He's very philosophical, yeah.
1: right? Where he's sort of... He wants to live, but also he's like, you You don't want to do this to your souls, mm-hmm. to your conscience. Yeah. Uh, but he is made to seem sort of very noble in the play. Although he says... This is when he wakes up from having this dream, right? That basically the sins he's committed are weighing on him, have come back to get him. Yeah. Um and that is true. And he acknowledges his role in the death of the sort of previous prince mm-hmm. <laughs> right, which is to say, um Henry the Sixth Henry the Sixth
0: and Henry the Sixth's kid. Um sorry, that's hard to say. And rips the bowels of our sovereigns. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Um. So he acknowledges all of that.
1: He also acknowledges this is in the play, although, again, we have the sort of difference of Clarence, George Duke of Clarence, um, kind of asking for forgiveness versus Richard. But Clarence sort of also acknowledges he has been a traitor to his own brother, which mm-hmm. is Edward, Edward IV, which he absolutely was. He absolutely was. He was the traitor. Richard III was not. Richard, of course, wasn't Richard III yet. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, supporting his brother, brother Edward IV, he was loyal to his brother. And he, when he married Anne, it looks like Clarence, Clarence sort of found out and married Anne's sister maybe as a way to kind of, I don't know, keep tabs on Richard to make sure he didn't get all that inheritance to himself. It was a powerful family, stuff like this. Um, but Clarence was, yeah, he was a traitor to the family. He was a two-faced liar, traitor, all oh sorts my of gosh. things. So he, he was not, not, not a great person in this, in this way. <laughs> Nothing like his John play. Richard, Richard generally was loyal, did marry Anne, you know, um, very much on purpose, all the rest of it. So, um... There are a lot of really interesting things there, of course. Shakespeare is not commenting at all on the historical Richard. (laughs) He's commenting on all the things we think of him as commenting on, right? Which is power and ambition and Mm -hmm. civil war and the way families are torn apart. All of those things, right? Um, That being said, that play has an amazing set of women, all of whom are historic, right? So there's Richard's own mom, who was never queen, but of course becomes... The mother to two kings. Does
0: that make um, you automatically queen mother? Technically, get promoted yes. that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then, so right, his mom, um, and of course, Queen Margaret, Henry the Sixth's widow, who was a phenomenal force historically. Yes, she gets great scenes. Yes, Shakespeare loved her. She's in a ton of his plays. She's in two Henry the Sixths of the three she's in two of them and then she's in richard the third she she's only in richard the third because shakespeare wanted to keep her around right (laughs) she would not actually have been there and she tells us she's leaving for france but um he clearly wanted her there because she first of all represents the other side right (laughs) but also represents this sort of um symbolically right she is the the whole sort of issue of civil war that women lose their sons and their husbands right um and end up alone mm-hmm. and what is the point ultimately and so that is margaret she has lost everything she's this incredibly powerful woman but ultimately she's lost everything and she's warns of course the next generation um and not even just the next generation you know richard's mom as well um she warns this family that are her mortal enemies, basically, that they're going to cam- come to the same end that she did, which, of course, they do. <laughs> yep. Right? Which is how we end up getting Henry VII, who basically isn't related to anybody. um, And so – and he will marry, then, Elizabeth, which is how he gets his claim to the throne, really. um. But that that sort of point, right? So she so she's stuck around in that sort of symbolic role, which is fantastic. Of course, she gets to curse everybody famously. Um So we have right that generation of women. Then we have we actually have a Queen Elizabeth, who was the wife to Edward the Fourth and the mother to another Elizabeth, who's going to be Henry the Seventh's queen. Mm-hmm. Which of course is why we end up getting Elizabeth's like Elizabeth I, right? She's named for these former Elizabeths, right? Um, Henry VIII's mom (laughs) and grandmother, right? Um, And they are clearly were incredible women. Um, And in the play, Elizabeth and Richard have this amazing scene where Richard's trying to get Elizabeth to agree to let him marry her daughter, which of course is creepy, but... um, (laughs) You know he needs to keep the throne, um, and I mean, great because technically that's his niece. So that's right. Creepy, creepy, creepy. But um, it's this amazing scene, and it uses the Greek term as stickamithia, which is where you have one line answered by one line, and you go back and forth with one liners, okay. but not funny, not funny, <laughs> not funny, <laughs> right? Dramatic, dramatic one liners, mm-hmm. one line, one line, one line. Um, and it's it's just it's a brilliant scene, and she basically outsmarts him. And then, of course, delays until he's dead. And then Elizabeth, and she actually sends word to to Henry the Seventh, who's not yet Henry the Seventh, Richmond, um, that she wants Elizabeth to marry him. So yeah, so we get that Elizabeth Woodville, Queen to Edward the Fourth. We have her daughter, who'll become Queen to Henry the Seventh, and then, of course, Henry the Seventh's granddaughter <laughs> will be Elizabeth. Elizabeth I. Um, but so that's what the Elizabeths, but yeah, the Elizabeths were clearly incredible women. Um, but one of the interesting things about that play, of course, is that Richard's, Richard's deposition is not seen really as the deposing of a king because he is seen as illegitimate, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he's not exactly, his villainy kind of makes him illegitimate. Now he is, it's kind of an incredible play in a lot of other ways. I teach it. We talk about disability, the way, It sort of questions disability. A lot of people actually trust and like Richard. He personally perceives himself and feels that he is perceived as a villain because of his disability. But Mm -hmm. that's not as true as he thinks it is. And he realizes it. Of course, he does woo Anne. He has all these people on his side. But it's a really interesting kind of commentary on the way society sees people. Anyway, there are a lot of things that go on in that play that are amazing. Yes, But it does not in any way justify the deposition of a king or queen for that matter, Richard II does in a way that is fascinating because Richard II is the tragic hero of that play. The further he falls, the better he is. Right? And Mm -hmm. we see at the end, he's kind of an incredible philosopher, but he was a terrible king. (laughs) Right. Right. And this is unfortunate because it's a little bit like Hamlet versus Claudius. You're not sure that Hamlet would have been a good king. He's a better person than Claudius. Mm -hmm. but you're not sure he would have been a good king. Claudius was a good king, but clearly a terrible person. (laughs) So where are the lines drawn? This is a question that Shakespeare asks. Anyway, um, but Richard II, as the tragic hero of his play, we do see his deposition in many ways as unfortunate but necessary. Mm -hmm. He was the legitimate king, though, there's no question. And there's an entire scene that is absolutely brilliant where Richard compares himself... Basically to Jesus, I mean, literally, not basically, he compares himself to Jesus. Yeah. Right? Being portrayed by Judas, betrayed, being betrayed by Judas, sorry. And um, not just being betrayed by Judas, but also he then has an entire scene where he kind of unmakes himself as king. Right? He, where he says, you know, I was all the stuff, you know, the anointed by God, the crown, the, all this stuff, where he like slowly kind of unmakes himself and gives it away to Bolingbroke who's going to be Henry the fourth. Um, and so, you know, and he sort of says, I what undo?
0: Is this the mirror scene?
1: Um, He's got that related, amazing- but separate. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yes. But
1: yes. Um, yeah. It's, it's act four scene one and he, yeah, he, you know, there's sort of this question, like God theoretically anointed him. Can it really be undone? And of course, by the end, the answer is yes. Um, because now Bolingbroke is king, and, and he's Richard says, you know, and Richard is nothing. It's so it's this amazing scene, but it also really puts into perspective <laughs> the ways in which all the symbols behind kingship. Unless you sort of back it up as a person, maybe it doesn't hold. Mm-hmm. And it's there's still a question about legitimacy. Is it legitimate to undo it? Can a king give this stuff away? I mean. It is a good question. It's never fully answered. It's a complicated scene. But in many ways, the answer clearly is yes, because Bolingbroke does become king. Mm -hmm. And we all know he's king. And not only do we know that he's king, but we know that Henry IV is ultimately going to have Henry V, who is one of the big heroes in English history. Yes. Which kind of then retroactively legitimates the fact that he became king. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Which he actually says to Hal in one of the Henry IVs. Right? He's like, you're going to have the legitimacy I never had, because you were born to it. Um, it's got to so be in part two. Yes.
0: Yeah. He doesn't so there's say anything le- even a little bit no. nice in part one. No, no, no.
1: Um, but yeah, it's this. so it's this really interesting question. Um, and it's an ama- but Richard II is an amazing play. It's Of course, it's an amazing, amazing play. But it does basically legitimize Henry IV deposing Richard. While also asking these amazing questions about what it means to be king and to have that power Mm -hmm. and to claim that you're anointed by God and all of that stuff. Okay. So, um, (laughs) the, the fact, first of all, that Shakespeare could kind of get away with writing a play like that is impressive. I think we could say. Yeah. Um, and (laughs) you know, um, even today, there's this sort of weird, um, I guess this is, obviously we're doing this because of Queen Elizabeth has just died. There's a lot of questions. Obviously, Charles is the legitimate king, but to what extent are people outside of England as a country really going to recognize him as a legitimate ruler? All these things are interesting questions. And, um, there's actually a play out there called Charles III written, I don't know, eight years ago or something, that brought up, ten years ago, that brought up the same
0: question. It was really? yeah. It was written I think before Han- Harry married Meghan Markle because yes, yes it was they. Yeah, I as I recall, there's something like he dates a woman who is possibly black, somehow considered inappropriate. But in the play, he leaves her. Ah, uh, yeah. The funny
1: thing is, I actually saw the play and I don't remember oh. that part.
0: I did I, see it. It was a good play. <laughs> I only know and, this because Peter Sagal tweeted about it when. Um, oh, that's really funny. Yeah, when Elizabeth
1: actually died. Oh, that's really funny. So. Yeah, but the in that play, Charles ends up deciding to give up his throne to William, which is also interesting. Um, oh, no, no, no! I mean, he, he's chosen his name and everything, yeah. but um, you know, but it's but it's that it is that sort of question of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Elizabeth, of course was legitimate absolutely, but as again, as a woman on the throne, you know, never safe. We talked about Mary Queen of Scots, we talked about this last time um, and did kind of see herself in potentially right in in Richard II um, the dangers of that. and so uh, Robert Devereux, right Earl of Essex, famously um, rebelled against her. He had been a favorite which may or may not be code for the fact they slept together. Who is to say, really? <laughs> but anyway, we can put favorite in quotes, potentially. Um, and he decided that he wasn't getting enough power. So she ultimately, of course, you know, he rebelled and she had to kill him. But um, he paid Shakespeare's company to um, produce Richard II the night before he started his rebellion, thinking it would encourage people to rebel in the streets, which it did not, because people really liked Elizabeth. (laughs) Um, But the fact that ultimately they did not get in trouble, it was decided they, of course, had no idea what Essex was planning. Not of course, though, actually. They didn't, and I certainly believe they didn't, but it was, you know, everyone at the time in charge also agreed with that. Yeah. That they didn't know what he was planning. They had just done what he paid them to, et cetera, et cetera. And they weren't, punished it wasn't they weren't told that they could never produce the play again that's kind of remarkable Mm -hmm. um and to this day (laughs) not only is that remarkable but um john oliver on last week tonight with john oliver um must have been last weekend i guess i don't know well it must have been um anyway recently in his show Um, Whatever first show he had after the Queen had died, he said um, something like, um, England is mourning the shocking death of a 96-year-old woman. Yeah, Um, Which, of course, he didn't exactly mean as a joke, and he said that, you know, but it is both a reminder that... Everyone's shocked because of course she's been there so long, but that is precisely why you should not be surprised right mm-hmm. she was old her husband died a year and a half ago like yeah there it's not surprising <laughs> and yet somehow it there was the sense that it was shocking the most shocking thing ever yeah. um apparently that was censored on S- sky news whatever whatever channel he plays on over in England apparently oh my that, God that was
0: censored okay
1: so And that is, in fact, true. The Daily Show um, with Jon Stewart and, of course, all the way to this day, Trevor Noah, um, whenever – I don't know so much under today, but when they (laughs) would want to talk about royalty, um, they would have these, like, stupid cartoon mock-ups that they would have to use because the – you are not allowed to use any actual footage of royalty – For satirical purposes.
0: Oh. So they have like a majest law? Yes. Interesting.
1: So that, I mean, so that says a lot. That's today, right? They can stop a different country. (laughs) A country that is famously no longer under their control from using footage for satirical purposes. Mm -hmm. Over there, of course, they can censor anything they want and do. Um, it says a lot about, (laughs) um, I guess freedom of speech as it works with the nobility and the royalty today in England. Yeah. Which makes it all the more impressive in some ways that Shakespeare wrote Richard II, let alone was allowed to produce it. Right? Um, yeah. So Queen Elizabeth, I mean, for so many reasons, but, um... You know, it says a lot that that <laughs> that something like that happened and was allowed and so on. And her namesake Elizabeth's. I mean, these are some amazing women. Um and we really we should really know more about queens, right? This is of course ultimately Elizabeth herself the second. I mean, there's this legacy of Elizabeth's, right? Yeah. So this is where this name comes from. Um and it's worth kind of knowing that, I think. Um Yeah.
0: Do you have a favorite? Um Victoria, honestly. Aha. Like I uh, I love the stupid like giant skirts and button sleeve. Yeah. The, yes. <laughs> I love the the clothes and the, the contradictions of the Victorian era, like the ways that they were super proper and also like whatever very dissolute like Oh yeah, the weird Victorian um I don't want to say laushness, but, like, you know, the, the, the esthetes and the pleasure, 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 what else should bring anybody anywhere, sort of Victorian. Wild. Philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, as a queen, I think that you can see, we talked a lot about last time, like, the ways in which she was very constrained by being female and also, um an excellent example of a woman as a ruler like doing mm-hmm. a lot yes um yeah
1: yeah i mean the empire that's the height yeah. of the empire
0: right is yeah. is under her i for, love i love the yeah. way that in the victorian era like so many of the things that we still, still argue about today are just like they're still there being argued about like right oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. you can see the beginnings of the modern era in in the way that women are treated. Um, yeah, you know with the the uh, founding of women's medical colleges and things like that like the ex- mm-hmm. that by the 1880s um, and 1890s, Victoria had become concerned about the um, the maternal death rate of women in, yes. in India. and so they were exporting female doctors to India, Who Mm -hmm. would be able to like attend women in childbirth when, um, you know, when, where there were taboos about women seeing male doctors and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's right. It's the, the highs, the highs and lows of the, the empire, right? The horrific ills of colonialism, violence. Yes. Genocide of colonialism. But then we also absolutely have. The other thing that happens during, of course, the Enlightenment through the Victorian era, which is <laughs> science and humanism, um, a lot of stuff happens, right? So, the, I mean, all the, a lot of things we've talked about in this program, the recognition of germ theory.
0: Um, There's the whole so many amazing of, discoveries where you're like, wait, they had only just figured that out, you know? Yes, Yes,
1: right. We have the industrial revolution and then also the beginnings of realization that you have to clean up after the industrial revolution. Yes. Right. Um yes, disease, how to stop it. Um the growth of medical science, absolutely women entering professions. So yeah. certainly medicine um and famously I mean we've got like Nightingale and there right. were, And there were we lots all these of things. women
0: scientists in the yeah. you know the 1800 the 1800s yes. going into the the early 20th century. And there were also like Marx living in London in the 1880s. And there's, Mm -hmm. you know, so much, there's just so much going on. Oh -hmm. my God. It's such an exciting era. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Arts, impressionism. Come on. Of course, of
1: course, of course. Yeah. I mean, but like all of those things. So, um, it's, it is, right? And then the ways in which of course England does export these things, yeah, out to its empire. And so um there's as with as with all things, right, this sort of mix of of what happens. Um and the sort of um one of my favorite uh my favorite play about this, actually, is um Sonka Death and the King's Horseman, which is not about the Victorian era. Oh. It's about the forties.
0: Okay. Um I was going to say, I think I like the invention of love by Tom Stoppard. Yes, that's different, but the it's uh, it's a brilliant play. No, that's not much about Victorians no. either. It's about right. Greeks yes, and Romans. But- it's about Roman love poetry, really. But- yes,
1: yeah. But Death on the King's Horseman it's it's the forties, but uh, it's based on a r- real story or a true story. It's based on actual history. Is my point. Um, but the there's a character in the play who is african um he goes off to england he's been to england to go to med school and he comes back um that is not in any way a summary of the play for anyone who's listening i'm just describing a character and if you do know the play then but otherwise that's that's not what this isn't what the play is about really but there is a really important scene where this character is talking to one of the british colonial um there's the sort of colonial um i don't know Enforcer, I guess, and his wife. Um, and he, the, this character's talking to the wife. Um, and he is sort of describing the ways in which he can perceive things really from both sides, right? Um, he, under, having been to medical school in England, he, of course, he values, he values the medical training. It's something Mm -hmm. he needed to go to England to get. But it also means that he can understand the ways in which England misunderstands. His home country, which yes. is Nigeria specifically. Um, and he is sort of trying to explain to the wife, <laughs> um, in a way that she can understand. Right. Um, and of course, she starts out by not understanding and then kind of gets a little bit as mm-hmm. it, as it moves on. Um, but it is that, that paradox, right? Um, of the ways in which enlightenment principles some of them being amazing science and exploration all this stuff
0: in many ways directly led to all of the evils of colonialism (laughs) yes the um (laughs) the tyranny of good intentions i don't know what else to call it
1: yeah but at the same time all of those advances are incredible it's just that we have problems actually (laughs) implementing them in ways that are helpful um but yeah, I mean, the Victorian era is the sort of, really of the modern era, as we, as we think about it in all of these ways. Um, yeah, but I mean, in another way, of course, Elizabeth England is the beginning of the modern era, right? Personal the 12th opinion, century renaissance. Really. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I mean, right, England, that's when we get the rise of England, that's the beginning of England's rise to become an yeah. empire, right, is under Elizabeth. Um, and from there, of course, you know. You wouldn't have Victoria if you didn't have Elizabeth. I think that's my point. Mm-hmm. Yes. But we should point out, before we get to all these amazing queens, um, we have a previous set of Henrys um, that Shakespeare did not write plays about. <laughs> and Other people um, did, though. Yes. So, you know. Well, one play. One play. I don't know. Lion in
0: Winter. Yeah. And, I mean, was there a play version of the Beckett
1: Yes, people have written plays about Henry II. Um, but to be fair, Henry II is the end of the line that we're going to talk about. Okay. Um, because we're really talking about who came before him, which are, to say, the Matildas. Yes. So here we go. Queens. We have talked extensively about all of the queens that England had, some of the ones that didn't quite or hasn't acknowledged, or has only sort of acknowledged, like Lady Jane Grey. But um, we really wanted to talk about... <laughs> um Empress Matilda. That sounds very official, but she's not yes. an official queen, right? She's not an official queen. She was empress because of her husband um of the Holy Roman Empire. But yes, she's not officially crowned queen of England, but she does rule. She was the heir, but she was not supported. She was the heir of Henry the First, but she was not supported by really the the nobles essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, for any reasons, but really because she was a woman. Um, and she's incredibly important, though, along with a bunch of other Matildas. So just like the Elizabeths we mentioned, there's so many Elizabeths. Um, (laughs) well, there's a bunch of Matildas. So we're going to talk about them because these women were extraordinary. They really helped shape what was going on. And we actually are going to start with Matilda of Flanders, who was married to William of Normandy, who becomes William the Conqueror. And, um, she is not Queen of England. I mean, she's Queen of England because she's married to William. Um, but she's also, of course, Queen of Normandy. Um, and she actually basically rules Normandy. She serves as the regent when William is in England. Ah. So Matilda of Flanders is essentially ruling Normandy.
0: So she had a lot to do other than, like, tapestries
1: yes she did not it was long rumored that she helped that she created or had created the bayou tapestry um she did not it was probably the bishop um but that is okay (laughs) that is okay we have we have talked about this elsewhere yeah um but yes and of course it's probably most famous. I think the only reason people still know this is because Tony Kushner has a whole speech about it in Angels in America.
0: It's a good speech.
1: It's a great speech. But um, yes, it just, you <laughs> know, happens that to be true, which is okay. Okay. That's fine. But yes, so here we are, Matilda. Um, So she is ruling Normandy. Um, She's super awesome. She oversees her kids' education. She makes sure her daughters are taught to read. So they're educated. Um, not just taught to read, I mean, but they're educated and also taught to read. So okay. she, she makes sure all her kids are educated. This is very much speaking of Victoria in the vein of someone like Victoria, right? Make mm-hmm. sure who married, you know, I mean, all of Europe ends up being descended from Victoria and the problems of like hemophilia. Um, the idea that you make sure all of your kids are basically ready to be rulers because they might have to be, including the daughters because of course there she is ruling Normandy, because her husband is off ruling a different country. <laughs> yes. Right? Now, I do want to say, this being said, they actually seem to have had a great marriage. It's not clear, that I think, that he had any illegitimate kids,
0: which is interesting. So... He himself was... Cool. Also was known an as illegitimate William kid. the Bastard. Yes. So, I think... Yeah. Maybe he but, knew how that was.
1: I mean, it doesn't necessarily stop people frequently, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, they seem to have been a good, a good couple. So, um... She oversees all this stuff. All right. Um, the kids, if anyone is wondering, uh, the oldest is Robert, um, who ends up Duke of Normandy. Um, when I said queen, I mean, really, she's Duchess of Normandy, but she's ruling it. So, um, but yeah, so we have Robert who ends up Duke of Normandy. He takes over, um, you know, when William dies, he gets Normandy. The next is Richard, who dies in a riding or hunting accident. He supposedly like maybe collided with a branch or something. Oops. Um then we get William who will end up becoming William the 2nd in England. So Robert'll get Normandy, William gets England, and then Henry. Um William the 2nd of England will also die in a hunting accident in 1100. So um after the conqueror dies, right? Um Robert gets Normandy, William gets England. William dies in 1100 and Henry happens to be there. Now, this is in no mm-hmm. way he di- he wasn't out he didn't kill him. Right. Um, but he is, like, staying in the nearby castle when his brother dies. So he's, like, on the scene, basically. Oh. And he takes the throne. Okay. Um, because, obviously, I mean, he's the one who's left, and that's it. He's there. He takes it. Great. Um, he then marries um, Matilda of Scotland. Now, this is incredibly important. Matilda of Scotland, um, who I believe was christened Edith, but takes the name Matilda. You know, it's obviously an important name now in England. William the Conqueror's wife was a Matilda. She takes the name Matilda when she marries Henry. So she's Matilda of of Scotland.
0: Um, And they have two kids, a William and a Matilda. (laughs) So we're carrying on the names of Henry's parents. Good. That definitely makes having dinner not at all confusing. Exactly. Now, Matilda of Scotland is cool.
1: Um, she's the daughter of another awesome woman, um, Margaret of Scotland, also known as Margaret of Wessex. And Margaret of Wessex is ultimately descended from Alfred the Great, which is why all of England's kings, starting with, well starting ultimately with henry the second who we'll get to eventually starting with henry the second and thereafter england's kings are ultimately descended from alfred the great alfred of wessex even though there are plenty of interruptions Mm -hmm. (laughs) right it is not a straight line so even though he is considered kind of the first in quotes king of england um we have talked in previous episodes about all of the things that happened right and sort of you know the vikings and etc so there's a lot of interrupting that going on but ultimately margaret of wessex is his descendant and her daughter matilda of scotland will marry henry i and we're eventually good that their descendant will be henry ii and
0: yes there we are so um if you really want a refresher <laughs> on what happened in England, who all the kings were before William the Conqueror, we do have episodes on them. I think it's yes. 50, in the 50s, 52, 53, something like that. We'll put a link in the show notes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's how that happens, right? That's through Margaret of Wessex, who's Margaret of Scotland, whose daughter, Matilda, marries Henry I. Um so that's, that's an important sort of lineage. Um, also, again, these are sort of incredible women. Um, Matilda marrying Henry I. They have, again, kids, William and Matilda, so named after Henry's parents. Fun, fun fact, Henry <laughs> will end up defeating and imprisoning his older brother, Robert, who you might remember as Duke of Normandy, thus regaining his father's hold on both England and Normandy basically
0: throughout history the amount of france that england owns has gone back and forth yes i think england. there was a war about this <laughs> yes <laughs> for some reason one. i feel like yes. maybe it lasted for quite a while yes maybe henry the fifth um, is part of it is yes. part of it yeah he has a speech about how france is going to be his Yes. Um, yes. And
1: I mean that's kind of the last time it is, really. Henry the Sixth loses it, of course. Um Probably good for the French, that Yeah. But yes, the Hundred Years War, of course, is very famous. And ultimately, um England England always feels that France is theirs because of William the Conqueror. Um and they don't really want to stop at Normandy. Ultimately Obviously, English kings don't want to swear fealty to French kings just because of Normandy, which is why they want all of France. Really, even though England ultimately does, of course, lose it it all, um, they kind of always still feel that France should probably be theirs, and it's a historic rivalry that kind of continues to this day. And when I say kind of, probably it's more than kind of, really. I mean, Brexit and all. Um, There's definitely some bad blood there. Um, But... Henry But they does, also have the channel. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, for a while when they were all in the EU was great, and now it's back to whatever. Okay. I mean, it still runs, obviously. It's just annoying. Um, but Henry does... Yeah, he imprisons his brother. He gets Normandy. Okay, so Henry I has it all. <laughs> um, Except not quite, because his son, this is empress matilda's younger brother william dies um in a what's known as the white ship disaster in 1120 um the ship sinks in the channel this is long before there was a channel um it sinks in the channel um it's leaving i think it's leaving normandy and going back to england anyway um yeah so it's on its way to england it s- sinks near normandy off the coast it hits a rock
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: oops. and um yeah William William dies, so um Empress Matilda is now the only heir to Henry the First. Um as a child, she had moved off to Germany, been sent to Germany. She was sent to Germany and marries the future Holy Roman Emperor Henry the V. Now, this is not English, Henry. This is Holy Roman Emperor Henry. Um, so she does marry him. She gets crowned. I believe, at St. Peter's Basilica. Um, This is how she becomes empress. Uh, Her husband then dies in 1125. So, um, she then remarries, this is the fun part, um, Geoffrey Plantagenet, who's the Count of Anjou.
0: Okay. So, if you've been paying attention to Shakespeare, that name might be a little bit familiar, the Plantagenet bit. Yes, we started, of course,
1: with a whole commentary on things like Richard III and his brother Edward IV. They are famously, famously Plantagenets. Yes. Um, This is where they get it. Geoffrey is kind of the beginning of this line, and that's why we get the Plantagenets. That's why they're called the Plantagenets. The fact that he's also the Count of Anjou is why they're also Angevines. So the Angevin dynasty in England, this is where you get it. So, um, yeah, Matilda's marriage is incredibly important. Um, and so now she is married to Geoffrey, and she is Henry the first's heir. He makes her his heir, right? So he kind of recognized that she was awesome. Um, and in fact, <laughs> she, she is, she is super awesome. So, um, the problem is that when Henry dies, the Anglo-Norman barons, now Anglo-Norman, of course, Right, that's the Norman the Normans who've come over to England. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and the and so they, along with the Church of England, don't support Empress Matilda. This
0: is there, no, sure political reasons. Not but the may- Church of England.
1: Yeah, basically because she's
0: just the Church.
1: Well right? well okay. Not the modern Church of England in the sense that it's set up by Henry VIII as a separate entity. <laughs> right. But this is the church
0: in England. Okay. That
1: makes more sense. So, yes, they're under the Pope
0: still, but this is the right. English. <laughs> so, at this point, the, the Pope had a significant amount of say in politics. Yeah, but this isn't really him. Okay. This so is this is, this like
1: is them. The this bishop, is the English. Yeah. Archbishop, yeah. maybe? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The archbishop. Yeah. We're talking. So, the, the English um, clergy. Okay. <laughs> Do not support Matilda. Um, this is presumably, you know, there are other political reasons here and there. Sure, um, politics because of who she's been married to and Anglo-Norman and this and that. But really, this is very much about the fact, of course, that she's a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so her first cousin. So this is Henry I's nephew, the son of one of his sisters, Stephen. Stephen takes the throne. Stephen is married to another Matilda.
0: Um and so <laughs> did yes. she wait? Did she also convert to Matildahood, or was she born? No, Matilda? she's a Matilda, and okay. she's also a countess. So she has
1: her own territory that she rules. Yeah, below Cool. Um and so she's she is a powerful woman in her own right. She is a powerful Matilda in her own right. Um, but Stephen, yeah, Stephen takes the throne because he has the support. Um, but Matilda, Empress Matilda. Right, first cousin. His first cousin
0: fights him for it. Fights, 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 and <laughs> she's like the Holy Roman Empress. Like she has resources. Yes, and she she basically fights him to a standstill.
1: Um, she does control England for a bit in 1141, but is not officially crowned. Um, Stephen and Countess Matilda have a son, Eustace. Stephen wants to crown him. He dies. So Stephen is left without an heir. And Matilda basically fights him until it's more or less agreed <laughs> that Matilda's son, of course with Geoffrey, so Plantagenet, um Henry is going to be the next king. And so this is why Henry I wanted his daughter to be queen. She's never officially crowned, although she does control England for a while, and she continues to fight for it. But her first cousin, Henry I's nephew, Stephen, is the one who gets the crown. But because he ultimately doesn't have an heir, his son dies. It's agreed that Matilda's son, so Henry I's grandson, who is Henry, (laughs) another Henry, will become king. And so he becomes Henry II. Right? And consequently, as Henry II, um... Of course, the kid then, right, descended from Henry I and Matilda, so therefore from Margaret of Wessex. He and all of his um, kids, and also just, you know, <laughs> all of the line that basically end up coming in afterwards, not all of whom, you know, cousins and... Anyway, there's a lot of infighting. Stephen is not the end of the infighting. Um, but basically, at that point, everyone is... um descended from from Wessex. Um, as, of course, Stephen technically is as well. So, um, but that's how Henry II comes in. Um, Henry II, of course, is going to be a very famous and important Henry. Um, he is, it speaks again a lot to Empress Matilda. She's really kind of given credit for him. <laughs> um, and he he does a lot. I mean, he really sort of helps establish England's legal codes and all sorts of stuff um, he famously will fight with the church I guess I should say the church in England as opposed to the church of England but yeah he will fight with it as ultimately of course will Henry VIII as well Henry II does not ultimately leave it but um, he does <laughs> create his own martyrs shall we say
0: yeah he um, for those who don't know he has this line about um, Thomas a Beckett. Yes. Who is, I think, he's the grave that they're going to see, right? In Canterbury Tales.
1: Yep. Yep. The holy blissful martyr for Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Beckett. Thomas Beckett. Yeah. So Henry II said something like, well, no one rid me of this priest. Tiresome priest. Tiresome priest. Meddlesome. Meddlesome priest. Yes. And somebody did. Yes. Which, like, bad idea. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, obviously, I mean, you have to be able to plead what is it ignorance or something ignorance. whatever it is you have to be able to say i didn't really mean for you to do anything i was just blowing off steam
0: but of course he meant for them to right you know, They do here's the him thing. like on his own altar which is not great but here yeah. is the thing right you don't ever want to be the person who says to your friend oh you should dump your boyfriend he's shit right because they will always remember that when they get back together with him Yes. And you don't want to be the person who murders the person that the king is like, could somebody murder this guy? Because right. the king is going to turn around and stab you. And that's what that scene in Richard the Richard the Third yes. was about. And yes. that also I believe happened to the guy who stabbed Thomas Becket. And of Thomas Becket got to be a, a martyr and a saint. Yes. And well, because once you're dead, it's easy to forgive you, right? Right. Um <laughs> but yeah, and
1: this This is, um, I mean, (laughs) Henry VIII is going to repeat history, actually, which is very interesting. Um, Yeah, Beckett, we know
0: how Thomas uh, Beckett, uh, uh, that's kind of added later. Um, Oh, is that being more... Yeah, to make it more... It's not pretentious enough. We need to make it more French. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But um, the sort of interesting
1: fact of um, Henry... You know, it is in many ways the same problem that Henry VIII had, that Henry II has, which is the church standing in the way of um, England doing its own thing,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? And Henry was – neither Henry was willing to put up with that, basically, right? Um, And Henry II, it's worth pointing out, also, of course, knew very clearly um, what had kind of happened, for example, to his mom, right? Right? that they did not stand behind her and Stephen got the throne and then he got it only because Stephen didn't have an heir so he he was not maybe super interested in putting up with it Yeah, <laughs> and he didn't but he did leave this incredible legacy he also of course marries Eleanor of Aquitaine who is another super favorite queen she's not officially queen she's queen because she's married to Henry II Second. But she she's a extraordinary, yes, right. and she has an incredible, um, an incredible legacy in her own
0: right on literature. Yeah, we've mentioned we've that, about that in a bit. the yeah. episode on Halloween, I think yes. last year that Marie de Marie de France, yes, is um a person who hangs around her court and she wrote mm-hmm. a bunch of stories, including a werewolf story. And apparently she's featured in a book called *The Matrix* that was a big bestseller that I haven't read, but uh-huh. who wrote yes. it? Lauren Groff, maybe? Oh, cool! I yeah. should look that up. Wait. <laughs> um. Well, yeah, she's um. Tends she's also to re- recommend anyway.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the famous also famous kids book um El Konigsberg, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a proud taste for Scarlet and Miniver. About, about Ellen of Aquitaine, um, and also about the Matildas, um, and we hear a lot about, um, <laughs> uh, Matildas and what they think of Stephen and so on.
0: Ooh.
1: Um, yes, but, um, yeah, Henry II, you know, I mean, again, the, the kid of like powerful women <laughs> and, especially, right? Empress Matilda. Um, and then married an incredibly powerful woman as well. Um, and the two of them really, really, really helped shape England as we think of it today. Right? A country, the sort of the laws, the literature, the sensibilities um, in ways that are very sort of important. Yeah. Um, so, but those are all the Matildas, right? It's a kind of really interesting lineage of Matildas. We have got Matilda of Flanders married to the conqueror who she is then the one who really is ruling Normandy. Right. And she raises the kids. Um, she makes their, they're all educated, which is awesome. Um, Henry, the first who ends up of all the sons being the one who doesn't die. (laughs) And also he kind of gets rid of the brother, the other brother who's still alive. Um, he marries a Matilda of Scotland, right. Descended from the house of Wessex. And, um, their kids, I mean, right, the one, they have the son who dies, and then ultimately, um, Matilda, Empress, right, who is gonna, marries first to become Empress, but then marries again (laughs) (laughs) to become a Plantagenet, um, and is Henry's heir, unfortunately, because... Women, basically, are not supported in leadership roles frequently. Um, She is not supported, and consequently, Stephen, (laughs) her first cousin, um, Henry's nephew, ends up instead. But because, and he himself marries a really powerful Matilda, right, who has her own territory, she's a countess. Um, Unfortunately, there, or depending on how you think of it, I mean, maybe for England, fortunately um his his son will die, and consequently, because Empress Matilda refuses to give up, good for her, um because really, boo on Stephen for taking this away from a woman. um
0: you know, she she, was, keeps fighting she em- was already empress of uh I mean, yeah, I mean, it, but she obviously she, she also raises her job.
1: she did. but she also raises her kid real well, right? because yes. she fights Stephen to the point that it's agreed her kid is going to be the next king. He is. That's Henry II. And, um, yeah, there's a sort of really fantastic, um, I mean, that legacy Mm -hmm. is a sort of really impressive legacy for Empress.
0: And, like, let's point out that by, whatever, 400 years later, England Mm -hmm. had sort of come around on the female rulers thing, and they had a pretty good run of queens. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: Society it is interesting. Change. Yes, it's very interesting that Matilda doesn't manage to keep it and loses out to Stephen, but then Mary, of course, does. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't a lot of men left, of course, which was Henry VIII's problem, but there's always someone somewhere. I mean, that's not right. So yeah, there, there is some really interesting. Some sort of interesting commentary there about what's what's allowed, was not allowed, and in that case, of course, speaking of the church, um, Mary flips him back to Catholicism. Yes, <laughs> and then Elizabeth, right? So yeah, religion. I mean, a lot of things have changed when when we get to that point. Um, but yeah, but then also Henry the Second, um, right? Stephen is not descended from the House of Wessex, but Henry the Second, of course, is. Right, and so then that's how you get again, right? From Henry II on, everyone is descended from, ultimately, the House of Wessex slash Alfred the Great. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so the Matildas, um, the sort of importance, it's, it is weird. They're, they're basically all Matildas, except finally Henry the Second marries Eleanor of Acquitain, Bacchus- yes. <laughs> who's also incredibly important. Um, but yeah, Matildas and specifically Empress Matilda um, and how important sort of they were. It also really says something about Henry the First. That he decides to make his daughter his heir. I mean, he doesn't mm-hmm. make Stephen his heir. He does not make his nephew his heir. He makes his daughter's. Heir. So um, that that speaks well of him, but also well of her. It says a lot of sort of interesting things about about
0: what was happening at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yay! All right. So so here's a random piece of trivia. When Elizabeth. This is okay, this is really random. When Elizabeth flipped England back to being Protestant, the last church in London that did Roman Catholic services was St Pancras Old Church, oh. which is among other things the place where Mary Wollstonecraft was buried, where PB Shelley and Mary Shelley, nay, Wollstonecraft, met over her grave to plan their elopement in hey. this churchyard. And later on, the because they expanded St. Pancras Station, which is right there, yes. um, they had to move the graveyard. And there's this Thomas Hardy was in charge of doing that. The Victorian novelist um and he stacked up a bunch of the gravestones next to a tree and the tree roots grow up between it and it's called the hardy tree now i think it's a like a british landmark you can google it um anyway so and it was all i think because elizabeth just happened to like the guy who was the priest at this church that she was like yeah you can keep doing roman catholic versions of the ceremonies but anyway, it's a really nice old medieval church, or like the exterior is and the interior was until the Victorians got their hands on it and tried to, quote, restore it. Yeah. So, but now- All these things happen. <laughs> we have like 15 minutes to talk about Boudica. So- Yes. Let's do that. Get awesome. Your, get your woad. We're ready. Yes. So,
1: um, Queens. Yeah. We can't talk about English Queens without finally, of course, mentioning Boudica. Um who is Celtic, right? so going all the way back
0: not all the way, of course, but pretty far as about as far as we go on this program like yes we're talking yes. Roman era right back to the Romans this is super fun because yeah,
1: um, it's this kind of reminder we in our discussion of the old English royalty, we definitely did mention some important women um but, Boudica is not only Celtic, of course, um, but yeah, part of the Roman era. It's a fun sort of reminder of <laughs> um, a lot of things that Rome had to say about England, which at the time, of course, was Celtic. Um, which we we remember when we read it, if anyone has read the primary sources, of course, that they're really fighting the Celts in England. um. But it definitely is, right? It's a step removed from the Angles and the Saxons <laughs> who come in after, right? Yes. Um, and then, of course, the Normans and so on, right? So this really is, this is, this is early England. Yeah. We're talking about the Celts. Um, one of the big problems, of course, with this era is that a lot of the sources we have come from Rome. And by a lot of, I mean most, right? Most of the sources we have for this, other than archaeology, come from Rome. So we are getting the history of Celtic
0: Britain from its enemies. This is (laughs) what happens when you happen to be the people who invent the idea of writing down history. Yes, well, I mean, the Greeks. Um, And of course, many others before that. I mean, Egyptians.
1: Lots of people. But yes, in this case, the Celts did not really write stuff down. In the same way. Right. Um, and not, you know, and of course, there, there is writing, but we can't always read it. And it's not, um, (laughs) it's not extensive histories. Right. Yes. It's more like markers and stones and things like this. Um, so yes, the extensive histories are written by the Romans. Um, famously, of course, in this case for Boudicca, we've got Tacitus, um, and, uh, Cassius Dio. So Tacitus is roughly, these are all circa, right? Circa, circa, circa. But I don't know, circa, we are this side of the year zero. So this is CE. But circa 56 to 120 for Tacitus. And then about 100 years later for Cassius Dio. So he's writing down stuff that he's heard and gotten from other places, right? Tacitus is much closer to the actual event He's, he's born around the time it happens, but he's, you know, he could have talked to people who had been there, for example, theoretically. Um, whereas Cassius Dio is about 100 years later. So he's like circa 155 to 235 or something. Um, but this is where we get our sources. So Boudica, first of all, is queen of the Iceni. They are Celtic. Uh, she's queen because, of course, she's married to the king and then he dies. Um, now... The Iceni are one of the powerful Celtic tribes in Eastern Britain. We are talking um, during the time of sort of Rome Roman conquest, right? So, um, particularly Claudius, Emperor Claudius,
0: as in I Claudius. I Claudius. Claudius the god, yes.
1: Yeah. Um, So, he is conquesting Britain, or his troops are, um, around... 43 the are 43 ish um and the iceni ally with rome um seeing that as kind of the best way to presumably maintain their power they are um allied with rome through through the death of Boudica's husband um so that being said there there is definitely tension so roman influence this is kind of in quotes, uh, Roman influence. You know, Rome is starting to poke its nose in, right? Because mm-hmm. this is what Romans do. I mean, they they want everything to run as part of the Roman Empire. So they start poking their nose in. So although they were allied kind of in the year 43, there's a bit of a revolt in the year 47. They remain nominally independent, though, um, under uh, Boudicca's husband. He finally dies in the year 60-ish. Circa, right? This is all circa. <laughs> um, and at this point, um, the, IC- the IC and I are in, I said the East, right? Uh, we're sort of talking um, present day, like Norfolk, Suffolk, Cam- Cambridgeshire. So parts of... Right? Mm-hmm. Parts of those areas. Um, and once Budica's husband dies, the Romans kind of move in, right? They're like, this is our chance. Um, and it's, it's a little, you know, again, so we're getting this from Roman sources. It's a little unclear exactly what happens. Um, the, source material <laughs> which again it is roman so who's to say but um suggests basically that rome decided not only to move in but to kind of make an example of budica and her kids um and so that they may have been flogged sexually assaulted stuff like this um it's was that true? Who is to say? Is, are the Roman sources, meaning Testus and Cassistio, are they trying to justify why Boudicca would lead a revolt? Maybe. Um, although it's also, I mean, Romans certainly did these types of things to try and keep people in submission, so it's also possible that it is true. But whatever happens exactly, basically, when her husband dies, it does seem like Rome thinks this is the moment to kind of take over this territory. Uh, And Boudicca disagrees. Mm -hmm. So he dies around the year 60 and she leads a major revolt, sort of 60 to 61. Um, Her uprising really does endanger Roman rule in Britain. Um, She, you know, leads her troops. They burn a number of major sites, burn slash destroy a number of major sites, including Londinium, which, of course, is London. Um, They kill a lot of people. How many? Oh, hard to tell. Exactly. Of course, again, we're talking Roman sources. They put it maybe as high as like 80,000, which seems like a lot, Jeez. but who knows? Yeah, okay. hard to say. I don't know. But anyway, um, it's suggested they not only are killing Romans, but also uh, Britons who are allied with the Romans. Presumably these are, of course, tribes that are not Iceni, right? So yeah, enemies of theirs. Um, And yeah, I mean, so she leads up, they sort of crush and burn all this stuff. The Romans do finally crush the rebellion. Um, and Boudicca either kills herself to avoid capture. That's Tacitus. Um, who's closer to it? So maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Cassius Dio suggests that she died of illness. Um, it's, it's even possible the way he describes it, like maybe he thinks that's why ultimately Rome won is because she actually died of illness.
0: Oh, okay. And that therefore, you know, she couldn't keep on campaigning.
1: Right. Right. It, yeah, so it's a little clear. So um yeah, that maybe anyway. So um there we go. <laughs> um and yeah, then that's the end and Rome like really moves in to take over, but it does kind of make them nervous and of course they will not for a few hundred years, but ultimately um, England is always kind of this weird outpost that they maintain but never f- fully have, right? Um, mm-hmm. They do... Hadrian, of course, they will famously have to build a wall. <laughs> um, uh, so there are... Right, so a lot of the tribes that do want to maintain their independence kind of retreat for example, northward. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're... They never fully subdued the entire isle, for sure. Um they do get this part of it ultimately. Um, but we should just read quickly. Um, there's some fantastic descriptions of, of Boudicca from, um, our sources. Um, the more famous one is, is from, um, Cassius Dio. Um, and so we have, um, his, his account. He says, right, a terrible disaster occurred in Britain. Two cities were sacked. Eighty thousand of Romans and their allies perished. That's where we get that. <laughs>
0: Jesus.
1: Um And the island was lost to Rome. Of course, that is not ultimately true. But anyway, this is his take. All right. Moreover, all this ruin—this is the Loeb translation, by the way. Um, moreover, all this ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, we all we all knew that was coming. Anyway. Um Okay, so um the person who was chiefly instrumental in rousing the natives and persuading them to fight the Romans, the person who was thought worthy to be their leader and who directed the conduct of the entire war was Buddhica, a Briton woman of the royal family, and possessed of greater intelligence than often belongs to women. Oh come on. Yes. Bro. I mean he's a you know <laughs> yeah. Roman historian.
0: What are you gonna do? Okay. All right. Romans um, had a much like Roman women yeah. were much more um suppressed oppressed well
1: uh, not always though well Livia I mean some of them were quite uppity it just this
0: is this is Cassius Dio just having to say okay anyway um plus you know she is the enemy so plus I probably shouldn't make generalizations about a civilization that lasted for over like four or five hundred years right like yeah well I mean more than that depending how you look at a thousand years a thousand years yeah. yeah That's enough time for civilization to change quite a lot. Yeah. And that's actually. just Western, of course. But yeah. All right. So,
1: yeah. So this is, <laughs> um, this woman assembled her army uh, to the number of some 120,000. Okay. That's a lot. Right? Yeah. Um, and then ascended a tribunal, which had been constructed of earth in the Roman fashion. In stature, she was very tall. This is the famous description. Okay. In stature, she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace. Uh, my parentheses, that would be a torc. Right? Okay. One of those T-O-R-C, one of those sort of really interesting, yeah, Celtic necklaces that people wore. All right. Um, anyway, and she wore a tunic of diverse colors over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. Okay. Um, she grasped the spear to aid her in terrifying all beholders. Okay. And then he gives a, her a great speech where she, you know, rouses the troops, right? Once more into the breach, et cetera, blah, blah. She doesn't say that, but I mean, she gives that, that type of this rousing yes. speech is the point. Which is yes. what you want in a military leader. Exactly. That's basically, yeah, that's basically what I want. Anyway, um... So that's that's the sort of famous, famous description of her. I've always thought that um, C.S. Lewis, when he was talking about kind of the, the white queen and stuff, mm-hmm. um, that she's modeled on Boudica. Oh,
0: interesting. I, would say.
1: Um, I mean, he's a medievalist, and it, they were all medievalists. I mean, everyone's <laughs> – if you're a British fantasy writer, you're probably a medievalist. Interesting. Um, but, yes. Um, I mean, it's – the description is just very sort of similar. Mm-hmm. Um and we even we then meet her again. We we find out her origins in some of the other Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe books. I mean outside the Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe. Some of the other books in the series we sort of find out her origins. Um I think the Oh, the magician's nephew, I think? Yeah. Um anyway, and we get even sort of, I think, a clearer picture in some ways there, um almost of her as this Celtic queen who gets imported. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a very sort of interesting take. Um, but anyhow, um, so that, that was Cassius Dio. So again, he's later, but that's his description. His description is, I don't know, it's very famous. <laughs> um, but Tacitus, who's a little bit closer to it, um, has all his, his own sort of description of it um, and what's going on. Um, and he says he's got sort of the added... Um, Description of Boudicca mounted in a chariot with her daughters before her, Hmm. right, Um, which gives you the sense, right? She and her daughters are all fighting. Yes, which would make some sense. I mean, obviously, if you're a culture where women fight, then
0: it's take your daughter to work day.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, Um, but also that sort of sense of her and her chariot, right, fighting, um, which is a famous image as well. But yeah, so. you know, they give slightly different variations, but it can, in some ways the most obvious variation is her her death <laughs> and whether she died of disease or committed suicide after losing so she wouldn't be captured, basically. Um, Tacitus is the one who says she ended her days by, by poison. Yeah. Um, but there we have... Yeah, this sort of really famous instance um, and a very famous revolt. I mean, the Romans always kind of remembered <laughs> um, who revolted against them, for sure. Um, somewhat with admiration and also somewhat with hatred, but also um, in this case, because it is led by a woman, right? Tacitus also, of course, has very specific things to say about this, right? Um, he actually says that it was customary with Britons to fight under female captains. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, which it's not entirely clear, you know, what is the point of him saying this? Um, it's not necessarily clear that that was true, although it might've been, I mean, um, why not? Celtic warrior women, like Vikings, it is possible. Uh, it's also possible that this is more his comment on, you know, what he thinks of the Brits, (laughs) the Celts. Um, he does say also um as he's sort of talking about this um that such was the settled purpose of a woman that men might live and be slaves right the idea that you know this horrific thing that she wants to capture men and sell them into slavery of course the idea of flipping what happens to women in war which is that yeah men capture them and sell them into slavery um so that he, he does see this clearly as kind of unnatural, right? So is he kind of portraying the Celts as unnatural for fighting under women? Yes, he is, but also, is that really his only point in saying this? Maybe. Um, or did he have more knowledge that there were, that there was more of a sense of women as kind of, um, leaders? Um, anyway. Um, but yeah, so this is the, um, one of the sort of famous famous revolts, right? The Romans um, really did have issues with <laughs> with the Britons, with the Celts, certainly in, in Britain, for sure. Um, and also with some famous uh, Germanic tribes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of leaders who they did really admire for sort of not giving up, for revolting, for occasionally beating them, even in the short term. Um, it does seem like Boudica really did some damage. So... Um, yeah, there's this sort of also incredible reminder, um, of, you know, the, the way the Romans kind of viewed the Celts, but also, um, this great sort of moment of, yeah, warrior, (laughs) warrior women in Britain. Um, and, you know, she, she does ultimately become, for the Brits, obviously, not just the Celts, but for Britain as a whole, I mean, as she sort of, um, because she's in the Roman sources, she remains known. right? And so as other groups move into England, <laughs> she remains a hero um, long after the point that she's necessarily a hero just to the Celts. I mean, she becomes a hero to England. Um, and she is definitely, kind of, I would say, a folk hero today.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, to,
1: to the British. Um, it's just sort of funny, because, yes, at the time, she is... You know, she's the queen of a tribe fighting this huge empire, the Romans. (laughs) And England itself will ultimately kind of become that empire. So there's a bit of an interesting sensibility. If you think of like her versus Victoria, they're kind of in opposite places, even though they are both on some level British queens. But anyway, yeah, she's awesome. And there are some very not necessarily good but probably trashy movies about her, um, which yes. is awesome. Uh, she deserves also are, some good ones.
0: <laughs> none of them are exactly <laughs> highly rated. No, um. but
1: I think one day she will get a highly rated movie. But in the meantime,
0: yeah, there's they some just fun, made fun a movie ones. about an African queen, right? With Viola Davis and oh, John well, Goyega. the Warrior. Yeah. Yes. Well, maybe yeah, the Warrior. Maybe Warrior yeah. queens will come back into fashion in movies. Yes. Yes, it is
1: worth pointing out, of course, that the, the fictional counterpart um, of the women warriors that most people know are the Dora Milaje, <laughs> which are the Wakandan yes. women warriors. But they are based on the historic troop portrayed, I believe, in the movie with Viola Davis. Yeah. Yes. Which, of course, is not a perfectly historically accurate film,
0: obviously, I that know not the nothing <laughs> about it, except that um, um, but there's a lot of previews of people shouting and running. Yes. and.
1: Well, I just know someone... They're... There was an article somewhere. Um, I didn't read the article, but the headline was just something like, I don't know, someone complained about how the movie wasn't historically accurate. And Viola Davis was basically like, it's a m- movie. Yeah. Of course, it's not historically accurate. It's just more historically accurate than like the dora milaje obviously Mm -hmm. but it's a movie you have to fictionalize stuff i mean that's what movies do (laughs) yes and that is totally fair yeah um but yes there but there is a historic uh women's i mean yeah historic women warriors
0: oh yeah they come up from time to time right like I feel like the, the Amazons were mythic, but like these ideas come from somewhere.
1: Yes, the Amazons were, yes, the Amazons are myth, but also aren't exactly myth because they're, the Greeks, um, and in Greek myth and stuff, myth, epics, they do name check specific women who are also probably mythic, but you know, from historic groups yeah. that did have women warriors. Obviously, we, the, you know, Valkyrie are mythic, but we know that there were women Viking. Warriors, they found some. Well, one specifically, right? Um but yeah, in this case the um the Dahomey a were an all female regiment in the Kingdom of Dahomey. From yeah, I mean, so they are they are a real historic uh group okay. <laughs> and and like historic historic, like Joan of Arc is historic, right? I mean, so they we know they existed. So it's not just like the Amazons where there's Probably some reality. There are some groups who are theorized to have been behind the myth of the Amazons, um, but again, th- that's kind of like Dormalage right there—the m- fictional version of a group that really was historic, which are the
0: um, Dahomey. So, are are we arguing that Black Panther is a more historically accurate film than Wonder Woman? Question mark. <laughs>
1: um, Am I gonna? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deals okay. with colonialism, deals with um, questions like, what do those who are privileged owe to those who are not? So many things. Yeah. Um, it's also it's also actually um, Afrofuturism, of course, which has a number of different facets, but in the case of the film, Black Panther... Is specifically based on the idea of what if there was a country in Africa that had not been touched by colonialism? Um, yes. And what would that country have, right? That had been allowed to keep its riches and grow the way it should have and not had all of its wealth taken and its people taken? What would that country look like? Right. Um, yeah, Wakanda, of course, is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but for Vibranium, I think we would insert
0: like, silicone or diamonds yeah. or whatever yeah be resource du jour yes yes yeah. okay it's getting late i think we ought to call this yay as much as so yes. i would like to have a marvel versus dc debate or <laughs> referee you having yes. this debate um yes yes so anyway until next time thank you for talking with me and thank you to all our listeners for listening yay. Do we still can we still say tuning in you're not what are you tuning? Anyway. Um, it's a if metaphor. You, yeah, it's for metaphorically <laughs> tuning in. Yes. If you want to engage with us, our Facebook is Ask a Medievalist. It, I believe it's facebook.com slash Medievalist or something. You can email it us questions at askamedievalist.com and you can tweet us at Ask a Medievalist. And I think that's it. Until next time, keep washing your hands and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at <laughs>